As I mentioned already, I think twice now, today marks the first full week of the Lenten season, a season of repentance, preparation, and journeying with Jesus in the gospel story towards Holy Week, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. Now, I've shared this before, that I don't have a long history of observing the Christian calendar. But for me, it has been a deeply formative part of my discipleship. Each year, I love that my life is marked by the story of Jesus and not just the rhythms of the consumer calendar. Amen? I want my life to be caught up in that story, formed by that story. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to be more intentional about my Lenten practices. I'll say more during the announcements period about how you can join me in a Lenten uh, prayer practice that I've put on the website. So I'll say more about that later. However, I want to say this, that our practices of observing the Christian cal uh, calendar can never excuse us to ignore what's going on in the world around us. It can never become another form of escape, like entertainment or other more destructive vices. Right now, in the world around us, in our nation, in our neighborhoods, people like you and me are experiencing the very real effects of sin and death. People have received diagnoses. Loved ones have received diagnoses. People have lost loved ones in their lives. People are going through financial crises. People are going through relational crises. And there's a whole lot of people that are just trying to make it through their week, teetering on the brink of despair. So why on earth would we be starting a, a sermon series called Bless, Becoming Good News for Everyone? It, it sounds like it has the potential to be tone deaf. Like it's, it's not recognizing this moment that we're in. It sounds like it has the potential to be callous or indifferent to the pain around us, like that obnoxious hashtag blessed. But that's exactly what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how as we live into the story of Jesus, this Lenten season, and as we are trying to be present to our neighbors and to the moment that we're in right now, the brokenness of this world, we're also at the same time learning how to embody the love of God in our everyday lives. So what does it mean to be a blessing to our neighbors? What does it mean to be good news? And what does the gospel have to say to us today? In fact, what is the good news? What is it? I want to spend some time this morning teaching on the gospel. To lay a foundation for the next five weeks when we're going to talk about five missional practices. That's, how, you know, I said churches love acronyms. It's an acronym. BLESS is an acronym, five missional practices that I'm going to talk about at the end, and we're going to spend the next five weeks going over those. But today, I want to lay that gospel foundation. So we're going to look at three gospel passages, one from Mark, one from Matthew, and one from John. But before we do that, would you pray with me a prayer of illumination? God, I thank you that you've gathered your people together again to encounter you in community and in communion, and to be transformed by your spirit. Thank you for the scriptures that point us to you. As we hear them read today, 
May your spirit illuminate the word to our hearts and minds. Lord, we don't want to be conformed to the patterns of this world. We want to be formed of the image of Christ. Show us how our stories are becoming part of your ongoing story, the story of your in-breaking kingdom. We also don't want to grow numb to the suffering among us, nor to the suffering in the world around us. So help us, Lord, to embody your love so that the good news of Jesus can make us into good news for others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. This morning's lectionary gospel reading is from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. So we're going to start there. Starting in verse 9, Mark 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days like Lent, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here's what he said. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent believe the good news. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, but I can't camp, camp out on this whole passage all day. We've got we to gotta focus here. So we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 mostly. Mark says that Jesus went around Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And then he summarized the message like this. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what's going on here? Well, I think it's important that we understand that just as our, in our day today, the world into which Jesus entered was also full of suffering, full of sin and death. You know, the Galilee was no vacation resort. It just wasn't. We know from the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian, that when Jesus was just a small boy, a Roman commander named Varus crucified 2,000 Galileans, squashing a rebellion. Jesus was just a little boy, and that's the kind of violence that he was witness to. When he's around 30 and he begins his ministry, his people are still being brutally oppressed by that same Roman military occupation. So how can Jesus come and say, I've got good news? How can he come and preach that the kingdom of God has come near? You can look around and see, that's not the case, Jesus. So many of us assume we know what we mean when we say the good news. That we've stopped trying to think about what Jesus meant when he said, I've got good news. So many times in our churches today, to preach the good news means to explain how to become a Christian. To give a three-step or four-step formula for becoming a Christian. But that's not good news, that's good advice. Jesus came proclaiming good news. Not what to, what to do, but what has happened. Good news, not good advice. That word that we translate into English gospel in this ancient Jewish and Roman context was a royal announcement. It was a proclamation. It was used of the birth of emperors 
and of victories in battle. And it had three distinct aspects that I want to teach you this morning. The first aspect of a gospel proclamation is this. A new and unexpected development has happened in a much larger story. There's got to be a backstory. Something new and unexpected has happened in a much larger backstory. That's the first aspect. Second aspect is something has happened because of which now everything's different. The world is a new place now. And the third aspect is this. It introduces an intermediate period of waiting. Now we have to wait. That's what a gospel proclamation does. Here's an example from ancient Rome. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, we all know that story, at two Brute, right? Two men emerged as new potential emperors. One was Octavian, that's Julius Caesar's adopted son, and the other was Mark Antony, famous for Cleopatra, right? Now, at first, these two were going to divide up the Roman Empire and, and, and reign side by side. But you know that didn't last. Eventually, that led to civil war. And in September 2nd of 31 BC, their two navies met in the Battle of Actium. And even though Mark Antony's navy was larger, Octavian was victorious because of superior technology and strategy. And then we all know that Antony fled to Egypt and committed suicide with Cleopatra. Now, N.T. Wright is the, the world's preeminent living New Testament scholar. Here's what he says about this in his book, Simply Good News. He says, suppose you had been a friend of the Caesar family. If Octavian won, it would be good news for you. But if Antony won, it'd be bad news for you. You might have to flee, you might have to leave town in a hurry. Then at last, Rome hears what happened. Good news. Octavian Caesar has won a great victory. He is now master of the whole Roman world. This is good news about something that has just happened. The backstory of civil war has come to a close. Peace is at hand. The word good news became a regular slogan for announcing to the world that Octavian, who would soon be called Augustus, which, which he's more usually known as, has brought peace, justice, and prosperity to the world. Does that sound familiar? But it would have immediately implied something about which, but it would immediately imply good news about something that would shortly happen. Octavian, having won the victory, would be coming back to Rome. First, he would have to consolidate his victory. There would be military mopping up operations to make sure that the victory was fully implemented. And it would take nearly two years before Octavian finally returned to the capital where he proclaimed that he had brought peace to the world. And during those two years, the city was poised between the news about something that had just happened, that's his decisive victory, and the expectation of something that would soon happen, namely his return in triumph. This is what news does. It creates a new period of time. Now, that's an ancient Roman example, maybe not as relevant to us today, but here's an American example. The story behind Juneteenth. How many of you know what Juneteenth is? The story behind Juneteenth is another example of good news. 
Juneteenth is the commemoration of the day when the good news of the end of slavery finally reached Texas. My wife's from Texas. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd, 1862, with an effective date of January 1st, 1863. But Texas was mostly removed from the fighting of the Civil War, geographically. So Texas didn't hear about it right away. It moved slowly. The news moved slowly. But on June 18th, Juneteenth, 1865, Union Army General Gordon Granger arrived in Gal Galveston Island with 2,000 federal troops ready to occupy Texas on behalf of the federal government. And these are the words that he read. He said, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation of the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. That's good news. Imagine you're there, and you've been enslaved your whole life, and you hear that good news. But for two, almost two and a half years, you've already been legally free. The news just hadn't reached you yet. That's what news does. The good news that Jesus began preaching in Galilee follows that same pattern. He issues a royal announcement. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. He's saying that in and through him, his ministry, God's kingdom is now breaking into the world. It's the culmination of a backstory. A long story of God's redemptive activity in the world. The story of God forming a people called Israel and restoring all of creation. The inbreaking of God's kingdom through Jesus and the Spirit means that something has happened by which now everything is different. But this good news also introduces a period of waiting until Jesus' second coming at the end of the age when he will make all that has gone wrong right again, and finish establishing his reign. This intermediate period is where we live right now. The New Testament often describes this like the overlapping of two ages. I, I made a diagram. I like diagrams. I'm a visual learner. So this is the diagram I made. Oftentimes the New Testament teaches that the present age is passing away. It's almost over. But the new age, the age to come, is breaking into the present. And we live in that overlapping period. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. This good news is news. It's not advice. This has happened, and this is the result of what has happened. This means that when you and I talk about the gospel, we're not talking about four spiritual laws or five ways to live your best life now. We're declaring the royal announcement of God's inbreaking kingdom. This is good news. And here's why this matters. Some, someone's going to say, why does that matter? Here's why this matters. Because good news is about you and me. It's very individualistic. What do I got to do to go to heaven when I die? Very individualistic. But the good news that Jesus preached was centered on God and God's kingdom and the restoration of the whole world 
If someone accepts good advice, they can pat themselves on the back. I followed good spiritual advice. I took those steps. I followed those laws. But good news, only God can take credit for that. We have simply found ourselves confronted, challenged, and transformed by this good news. So we live it out. We live out that good news out of an appropriate sense of gratitude. We can't pat ourselves on the back for it. It's God's grace. So remember that the gospel is good news, not good advice. But the gospel is also not just a declaration. The gospel is also a demonstration. God's mission has always been holistic, never dualistic. From the very beginning, God's dream for the world has been shalom. We say this a lot, shalom. The Hebrew concept of wholeness, right relationships between people, justice, peace, and harmony. And that's still God's dream for the world. But in the Western world, we've created all kinds of false dichotomies between bodies and souls, between personal relationships with Jesus and social justice, between spiritual conversion and seeking the common good. But Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, for them, the declaration of the good news was always accompanied by physical, material, and social demonstrations. This brings us to our second gospel text, Matthew chapter 9. This is the great summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Matthew 9, verse 35 says, Jesus went all throughout the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This is actually a very good summary of everything Jesus did, because it was all part of his declaration and demonstration. Jesus healed people's physical bodies to show that in the inbreaking kingdom of God and in the age to come, there will be no more sickness and disease, only health and wholeness. Jesus raised the dead to show that in the inbreaking kingdom of God and the age to come, death is defeated and new creation is bursting forth. Jesus fed the hungry to show that in the inbreaking kingdom of God and the age to come, there would be no more poverty only abundance and flourishing. Jesus included the ashamed and the outcast and the oppressed into a new family of misfits that he was forming to show that in the inbreaking kingdom of God and the age to come, there would be no exclusion or injustice, only harmony and right relationships between people. Everything Jesus declared, he demonstrated. He didn't just care about what we call today souls or spiritual conversion. Jesus cared about making people whole again and making communities whole again. I didn't always see this. There was a long period in my Christian life when I actually still had a lot of dualism in my mind in the way that I conceptualized these things. This past uh, Tuesday was Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras Day. And my, my daughter and I had a, had a good time. We made king cake. That's a New Orleans tradition. And we have New Orleans traditions in our home because New Orleans holds a very special place in my wife and I's heart. It's where we met. It's where we got married. It's where we started a family. It's where we started our lives of ministry together. And I have to say that New Orleans didn't always have positive associations with, my, with me. My first couple of trips to New Orleans, it was, it was Sin City. It was, you know, where the devil lived. <laughs> and I went down there 
with the sole purpose of saving souls, converting people. I wanted people to pray the sinner's prayer with me so I could know that they would go to heaven when they died. I did that for several years. Then there came a shift in my thinking. And it was right around the time when Oshita and I moved into an under-resourced neighborhood of New Orleans called Hollygrove to serve with a faith-based community center there. We began building relationships in the neighborhood, and I realized that I was no longer witnessing to strangers who were getting drunk and partying. I was now witnessing to my neighbors. It's a different story, right? I now realized that my destiny... My life was now tied up in the destiny and the lives of my neighborhood. So goes the neighborhood, so goes we, right? And I realized that I was called to seek the shalom of the city, like the prophet Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon, because as it prospers, so too shall you prosper. With a lot of help from wise and prophetic voices in my life, I eventually realized that my gospel was not very holistic. It was very dualistic. And if I, w- I realized if I wanted to have long-term and meaningful impact in my neighbor's lives, I needed an adjustment in my posture and in my thinking about the gospel. I needed to, to move from converter to blesser. And when we move from converter to blesser, this is a famous, by the way, this is a famous uh, comparison of missiological mission strategies, converters versus blessers. There's a famous uh, example of two missions agencies that were doing uh, entrepreneurial business missions in Thailand. And the guy who wrote the book called one group the converters, and he called the other group the blessers. He called the one group the converters because their posture and their approach towards the Thai people was that all the economic development they were doing and all the social contributions was simply so they could produce converts. But the other group he called blessers because he asked them what their primary purpose was and their answer reflected sincere concern for the Thai people. A desire to help people in every aspect of their lives, such as family, finances, and also to grow in their understanding of the Christian message and become Christ followers. This orientation included conversion, but only as an aspect of a larger purpose and a bigger vision. We might be tempted to think that the team that focused purely on conversions would have more conversions, and the team that focused on blessing would see fewer conversions. But actually, this is what the study found. The study found that the blessers saw 100 people come to Christ, and the converters only saw two. Why was there such a disparity? Part of the reason why is that the blessers built more deeply genuine relationships. They hired people long-term. They invested capital into the economy that created better incomes for people, and they built deeper trust with the community. So when the founders and leaders of the blessers would share about their faith, People wanted to hear it. (laughs) Makes sense, right? They were genuinely interested and influenced profoundly by the blesser's natural and relaxed manner of sharing the gospel. On the other hand, the converters never really became part of the community. Their agenda overshadowed their relationships. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
It's true. People want to be got. They want you to get them first. To be committed to their well-being. People want authentic relationships. So, when we have a broader vision of the gospel, being the restoration of the whole world, making people whole, and liberating whole communities, our posture shifts from converters to blessers. We're motivated to not only declare the gospel, but to demonstrate the gospel through our lives. This thicker, more robust understanding of the gospel and its, its accompanying posture has a profound effect on us. It changes us. It transforms us. God's kingdom culture begins to invade our lives. And we become different people. We become good news people. We actually become good news to people. So that's what this third gospel passage is all about. John 17, verses 13 through 21. This is part of what has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus says, Now I'm coming to you, Holy Father, and I say these things while I'm in the world, so that they can share completely in my joy. I gave your word to them, and the world hated them, because they didn't belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to this world, just as I don't belong to this world. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I made myself holy on their behalf so that they also would be made holy in the truth. Verse 20, I'm not praying only for them, but also for those who would believe in me because of their word. I pray that they would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray they also would be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've been given the glory that you gave me so that they can be one just as we are one. In them, I'm in them, and you are in me, so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me, and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. Do you see how Jesus' prayer for unity and for love and for glory is all about us being caught up in that love that he shares with the Father and transformed? made holy, made new, made one. Our identities become different. We get a new identity. And we are sent on the same mission that Jesus is sent. We are sent to know God and to make God known. And we're called to carry out that mission in the same way that Jesus did. Proclaiming the inbreaking kingdom of God and like Jesus, demonstrating it through our lives. See, the good news is not just something that we know. It's something that gives us a new identity. That intermediate period that is introduced by the gospel, that waiting period, it pulls on us. It drags us into the future like time travelers. I like to use this back to the future analogy. Indulge me. I'm from the 90s, okay? Like, I grew up in the 90s. I think in terms of back to the future, okay? This is, my, this is my 
eschatological analogy from Back to the Future. Remember when Doc Brown shows up in Marty's driveway with the DeLorean, the time machine? And he opens the door of the DeLorean, and for a few brief moments, you see that air escape the DeLorean door. Do you remember that? This is like a screen capture of that moment. Air comes out of the door. And for a few brief moments, Marty and Jennifer are standing there breathing a little bit of future air. Air from the future. That's like us. Because of the good news that the kingdom has arrived now and will arrive in the future and is currently arriving, we can breathe some of that kingdom air now. We can breathe some of that shalom from the future. Because of the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived and will arrive and is arriving now, we can currently start embodying some of that kingdom culture now. Some of that wholeness, some of that justice, some of that peace, some of that harmony. Because of the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived, will arrive, and is arriving now, we can be freed from the oppressive patterns of this world that will one day come to an end. We can get free now. And in just a few short chapters after this passage we just read, Jesus is going to come to the disciples after his resurrection, and he's going to breathe on them. And what does he say when he breathes on them? Receive the Holy Spirit. That's that kingdom air, that future air. This is why it's not tone deaf or callous to be talking about good news in a broken world. That's why we are talking about being blessings to our neighbors, how we can bless our neighbors. Because in and through Jesus, the future that we all long for, us and them, where everything that's gone wrong is made right has erupted into the present through Jesus and the Spirit. And because we are being transformed by this good news, and because we are sent into the world, we not only declare the good news, but we become good news for people. So that's why for the next five weeks, we're going to be exploring five missional practices, ways in which we can bless our neighbors, ways in which we can become a blessing to our neighbors. The B stands for begin with prayer. Everything begins with prayer. This is where we are transformed. It's in God's presence. And this is where we intercede like Jesus on behalf of our neighbors. This is where we are formed by that kingdom culture. It's in worship and in prayer. The L stands for listening with care. Do you know that Christians do a lot of talking, but not a lot of listening? One of the ways that you can show people that you really care about them is listening. And I think in this time right now, it's even more important that we listen. I think right now, a lot of people believe that Christians don't care. Christians just have their agenda. Christians just have their talking points. Christians have their political philosophies, and they don't really care. But you know what communicates care like nothing else? Listening to people. So L is for listening. E is for eating together. I don't know why God did this, but he made something, something special about eating together. Am I wrong? Have you experienced this in your life? When you share a meal with someone, you're let into their world, right? Food has a way of getting in on the inside of us, literally, right? And so does that, that, that time that we spend with one another. It gets in the inside of us. And you know what else 
when we share our food with each other, we share a little bit of ourselves with, with other people, right? A little bit of our culture, a little bit of our process, a little bit of our family. That's why we make king cake. It's a little bit of who we are. The first S stands for serve with love. Before we ever get on our high horse and tell somebody what's wrong with their community or what's wrong with their lives, how about we just serve them first, right? My wife has a whole chapter in her book. It's called Serve Before You Speak. So the first S is for serve with love. And the second S is for share your story. A lot of times we share the gospel as a list of propositions. First truth, second truth, second, third truth. That's not going to work in this culture. Those days are behind us. Today, people want to know what's real. What's real in your life? How did the gospel transform you? And if I see it in your life, I believe it. So sharing our stories is a powerful way of sharing the gospel. As we move into this Lenten season and we draw closer to Easter and to the Holy Week, I want us to galvanize our sense of identity and our sense of mission. And the best way I know how to do that is by coming around the table of the Lord. This is where we remember the good news and what it's all about. It's all about God demonstrating God's love for us in Jesus, laying down his life for us. This is the supreme way that we know the good news has arrived. And when Jesus rose again, he became the first, fu- first, fruits, excuse me, first fruits of that future of shalom. So when we come to this table, we're not only reminded of this truth, we're also encountering Jesus by the Spirit, through the Spirit. As Jesus prayed, we are made one with him, we are joined with him at the table, and we are made one with one another. Paul said, if we eat from the same loaf, we become one body. 